0: Most of us love a good story. It's why the television and movie industries are as big as they are. It's why a child can get lost in a picture book at a young age and why an adult can get lost in a book with thousands and thousands of words. From, from Spielberg to Christopher Nolan to Tolkien to Shel Silverstein to, to Vin Scully in the broadcasting booth. To parents and grandparents who have have told us stories that we remember decades and decades later after they were told. It's all because stories have power. It's because the way we see the world is shaped through the stories that we are told and the adventures or the stories that we live. Now, I'm a firm believer that that, that the reason Scripture, the Bible, is so powerful to us is because God knew that that, that God could could communicate with humans in a way that we would understand, that we would relate to the story. So when we read a story like David and and Goliath, we're we're drawn into the narrative of an underdog. And when we read about the conversion of of Saul of Tarsus, we, we see a story of redemption and we say, ah, They're stories of encouragement or inspiration, stories that at times challenge us, and hopefully stories that ultimately draw us nearer to God and help us to become the people that God has created us to be. So in our first scripture passage this morning, Catherine read a a small part of, of Joshua in the battle at Jericho. Now most memorable stories involve some sort of good guy and bad guy or a, an antagonist and a protagonist or a, a problem to be solved and a creative solution. But but sometimes sometimes stories aren't that clean. Sometimes stories aren't that clear. So so what we heard from Joshua is is one of those places. He's standing right outside the walls, and the hero, Joshua, he's about to finally deliver God's people to the land that they have been promised. And, And he sees a soldier who's ready for battle, and he goes to him and asks, Are you for us, or are you against us? And the soldier says, Neither, but as the commander of the Lord's army, I've now come. Now we don't really know who this story is. Some scholars think that this story was an angel. Others think it was God personified uh, Jesus or something similar to what uh, Peter, James, and John experienced in, in Luke's gospel when, when they go up the mountain at the transfiguration. We don't really know. But we do know that when Joshua asks whose side the commander of the Lord is on, the response is neither. This is one of those those places in the Bible that if we don't pay close attention, we miss something important. Now, as a kid, I, I didn't really pick up on, on this part of the story of Joshua in the battle at Jericho. I, I, I kind of pictured the good guys, the, the Israelites, right? Outside the walls, get ready to go in. And, and the, bad, the big bad army from, from Jericho kind of walking along the top of the wall with all their weapons ready for battle. And in my mind, God was firmly on the Israelites' side, right? Because they were His people after all. But when Joshua asks, whose side? The answer is neither. So, so Joshua asks, well, what am I supposed to do with that? What do I do? And the commander responds, take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Standing in tension, standing in the middle, not having a, a clear answer, it's holy ground. Now, we live in a world that tends to hold up one side of a story as good and the other side of a story as a villain or bad, and, and those views are, are shaped by the stories we, we've, we've heard or, or through our own experience. And, and when it comes to an issue like race and racial tension in our country today, The story that we hear, the two dominant stories that we typically hear, are are something like this. Communities of color are are full of good people in bad circumstances. They've suffered at the hands of those in power, government, police, whomever, for far too long, and it's time for something to change. It's the narrative that says things like, all lives can't matter until black lives matter. That's one story, one narrative. The other dominant story says we know racism is wrong. Our country has come so far, and we shouldn't let a few wrongdoings set us back. We can't allow race to make us blind to the fact that crime is crime. We need to allow the, the, the justice system to do its job. Now, I know those two narratives are, are oversimplified and that there's at least one other worldview that that is overtly racist that, that says, well, uh, I'm better than you just because I have a certain color of skin uh, or I was born in a certain place. So you know, obviously I'm better. I would hope that we're at the place in our congregation, in our community that most of us would, that we'd all agree that the blatant acts of racism are wrong are sinful. But that doesn't seem to be the main point of contention today. You can almost see Joshua standing in the middle of these two dominant narratives, asking the commander of the Lord, what do I do? What do I do? We can't ignore that God clearly had favor on one group of people in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, often at the expense of other people groups. But we do need to remember that the blessing that God bestowed on Abram wasn't just for his family. It was for every nation. Nor can we mitigate or, or somehow downplay the truth that Jesus always stood for the oppressed, for those who are on the margins. And, and Jesus also always challenged those who are in power. Now, I, I don't know if it's, it's possible to faithfully read the Gospels and, and to come to a, a different conclusion about whose side Jesus was on. Scripture is complex, full of tension. And, and it's this holy ground, a place to pause to take off our shoes before diving into what God has placed in front of us, our world is full of tension. We need to pause. So how can we be faithful followers of Jesus in the middle of it all? How do we engage the work of reconciliation in today's world when it comes to race? One way we can work to to bring healing in today's world is by being honest with our own stories, while at the same time honoring and validating and accepting the stories we hear from other people. Last week, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, seeing it as a call to step into the places we see where we just know something isn't right. Today, I want us to take a a quick look at an interaction that that Jesus has with with an actual Samaritan, with a Samaritan woman, out of John's Gospel, John chapter 4. Now, the story takes place right as Pharisees catch wind that Jesus's number, the number of Jesus's followers are are growing. And so he leaves Judea to go to Galilee. And and for whatever reason, he feels this urge to take a different route than he would have normally taken. Right through a place called Sakkar, which is right along what we see today as, as the West Bank. And and he and his disciples, they stop there. The disciples, they head into town to get a bite to eat, to get some food. And he sits down by a well, probably hoping to avoid seeing anyone because it was the middle of the day. And a woman, she shows up. Jesus sees this woman and, and he says, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me? A drink. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Right away, she notices their differences. And she calls out the, the cultural norms You're a man, I'm a woman. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. We're not supposed to do this. We're not supposed to talk. We're not supposed to share stories. And at verse 10, Jesus says this If you knew the gift of God, Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, go call your husband and, and, and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus and the woman, they they continue this this back and forth conversation, the woman shares her story. Jesus shares his story. And, and, and at one point, Jesus says, a time is coming when everything, when all of this will make sense. What were those who truly worship God, what will, will be revealed? And she replies, oh, I know. I, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, everything will be explained to him. And then we get this, probably one of the most declarative statements that that Jesus says in any of the Gospels. And it's all about his his identity. He says, I I am the one that that you're speaking of. I, I am he. Stories, they reveal identities. In this entire interaction, Jesus doesn't outrightly condemn or question this woman. It wouldn't be a stretch to say that he might not approve of her lifestyle, but he, he doesn't berate her with condescending questions about it. In fact, it is through naming her story and validating it that she opens up and begins to share a bit more. And as she comes to terms with her own story, as a Samaritan woman who's lived with at least six different men and who is probably at the well at the hottest part of the day to avoid seeing someone, she gets to know Jesus' story as well. The the conversation, it had to be uncomfortable. There had to be this, this tension as she came to grips with who she was and who she was talking to. Now, earlier I mentioned that an important part of engaging in the conversation around race today is by learning to be honest with our own stories. And now each of us is so complex. There are things that we're proud of in our story and things we really hope no one ever finds out about. In the same way, our family's stories are mixed. And I know, at least for me, the more I discover about my family, the more questions I have. And in some cases, the more more tension, internal tension I feel. I can remember the first time I had a bit of an identity crisis around my family's story. It was about 20 years ago, and I was on a run in the neighborhood where my parents grew up in Indiana. Literally, we were, we were staying literally a, a block down the street from the house where my mom uh, spent her childhood. I, I ran by what, what would have been and could have been my high school. And I remember stopping and thinking, oh, if my parents didn't move to California before I was born, my life would have been so different. I wouldn't have grown up at the beach. I wouldn't have had the same friends. I wouldn't have, have gone to the same church. Shoot, I might not even have become a, a, a pastor. Who knows where I would be and what I would be doing. And at the same time, to a degree, that, that culture of this, this neighborhood in northwestern Indiana that I don't really know that all that well, it has shaped quite a bit of my family's story. And because of that, it's a part of my story. Years later, I was confronted with my identity in in a different way. Haley and I, my wife and I, were were in Malawi visiting a a friend in a a village that that was a couple hours outside of the city where we lived. Now, we had heard the term azungu, which which means white person, plenty of times before. It's not a term that's that's really seen as a disparaging term by locals, but it it took some getting used to for us, especially for me, I should say. The village we were visiting hadn't hadn't seen a white person in in a long, long time, hadn't had a white person visit for for a number of years. And as we walked through the community, there, there were children that were following after us in choruses of, uh, zoom, goo, uh, zoom, goo, uh, zoom, goo. And I remember lying down at night to go to sleep that night and thinking about what does it mean to be a white man in this context? As I watch what's happening in the world around us today, I, I, I ask that same question as a, as a dad, as a pastor, as a, as a husband. What does it mean to be a, a white man in today's world? Have you thought about your story, your identity, how you've benefited from your family's history, and, and maybe how you've been hurt by it as well? Now, this isn't about making ourselves feel guilty. It's about being honest. With ourselves. The second part of the equation is listening to the stories that others tell, validating their experiences, especially when it's ex- an experience that's very different from our own. So in today's climate, for those of us who, who are white, are we listening to the cries of the black community? Are, are we hearing people of color or are we just writing them off? Are we actually engaging? Now, it seems like every week a, a new video comes out. A person of color is abused or shot. A protest begins. Riots sometimes follow. The, the police respond. Some of us agree with the response. Some of us don't agree with the response. There's, there's an outcry from mayors and from government. The blame game begins. It's, it's a, become a predictable cycle, unfortunately. It's so easy to vilify those who tell a story that is different from our own or one that is incongruent with our own experience, to vilify the other. And for many of us, the first step of of bringing reconciliation into this world is learning to simply listen, to be slow to speak and slow to anger and quick to listen, as James writes. The story of Jesus and the woman at the well ends with the disciples coming back from town with some food. And and John notes that that none of them are there asking, what is she doing here? Why were you talking with her? It was as if they knew Jesus sought to break down barriers through the art of sharing and listening to stories, probably because he had sat down with them and shared stories and listened to stories. May we learn to be a community who are honest with our own stories and who validates the stories, the pain, the hurt, and the fears of others. Amen.